Sean Fogler is the Community Outreach Coordinator at the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition, a person in long-term recovery, physician, and certified recovery specialist. He has over 15 years of experience in the healthcare industry working as a physician and with patients, administrators, and insurance organizations. This is the second part of the interview, so make sure you listen to part one first. In this portion, we start off discussing how to effectively help friends and colleagues with substance use disorders, the importance of language in this area, and then he tells his story. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. You know, we need to build a better system, you know, and we can do it. We can do it. It's just the willingness to do it, right? But it starts with valuing individuals that have a disease, if we really believe it's a disease, because I think the way we act a lot of times is that it's still a moral failing, right? And we know that's not the truth. You, you've, I hear you've spoken a lot about the importance of personal connection and recovery and, and the importance in your recovery. And you just talked about that now. So some things I like to have in, in the podcast are like advice for people. So let's say you, let's say I had a friend in recovery, right? My relationship with him or her would be important. What, what can I do for that person? What should I be looking for? What should I be concerned about? What should I be doing to best help my friend, my colleague in recovery? I think it starts with just having open and honest conversation. I think a, I think a lot of us, like, we're afraid to ask. And it might not be just because we don't, you know, we don't want to know, but maybe, it, you know, depending on the answers, we won't know what to do. And, you know, as healthcare professionals, like, we want to fix things. We want to make things better. And I always say, like, you know, substance use disorders or addiction is one of the most complex diseases out there, right? It affects everything, you know, psychological, biological, spiritual, and it manifests differently in different people. And what works for one person, you know, doesn't work for another. So I think, you know, having honest conversations, hey, how are you doing? You know, how are you feeling? You know, does this bother you? And because connecting, like, having people around you that you know love you and support you and are and you're really connecting in an open honest way like that's been the most important thing to my recovery and many of the people i know in recovery that that's what it's all about so open honest connection um i i, I it sounds like you said be okay that you're not going to have answers for them right yes. like it's it's going to be as physicians it's going to be uncomfortable for us if we have a friend going through something and we can't help them. But it sounds like the helping them is the listening. Like you have to get past your own discomfort with the fact that you don't have answers for this person. Get over yourself. Just ask them and just listen. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that really, that's it in a nutshell. We don't have, like we're human. We don't have all the answers. Bad things happen. People struggle. We all struggle, whether it's in recovery or out of recovery, whatever it is. I mean, we all have struggles and there aren't always answers or, or the answers that are there aren't good answers or, or the answers we want to hear. And it's, yeah, it's 
being okay with not being okay. It's being okay with not having the answers. Um, but I, I think just, you know, having real authentic conversations and, re- and, and taking the time to listen because most people don't listen, right? Um, or, or when they're listening, they're listening for what they want to hear. Um, and that's part of it. And it's, and it also comes down to the whole idea of asking that person, what do you need? What will make, how can I help you? What will make things better? And we might not like what we hear with that either, (laughs) but I think it's really important to honor, you know, their, their own, you know, self-agency and, and the, because recovery is a process of change and, it's not our recovery. And, you know, that's the problem with some of these like 12 step programs and, you know, back to physician health programs, you know, they've been a long list of requirements of what you're supposed to do, but you know, that's just dictating what we think recovery should be or that, and, and maybe that's not, you know, ab, now, you know, for healthcare professionals, it is an abstinence based program, but abstinence is not always the outcome this, or the or the goal of 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 somebody of an individual right um, and that doesn't mean they're not healthy now obviously if you're practicing medicine and you're in one of these programs you have to be absent there is no choice but if you do have a friend that struggles and you know maybe they were using cocaine maybe they were smoking marijuana but they're not they're only drinking now you know many people would look at that and say you know, you're not in recovery. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. But, you know, a couple drinks a day, you're going to work, you're taking care of your family, you're connected. I mean, that's recovery for some people, right? So it's it's not all or none. It's not binary, you know? And and it's met like the process of recovery is not a straight line. It's It's frequently very chaotic and there's a lot of ups and downs. And I think the other thing I would say is be patient because it's not a straight line. And just like life, you know, it can be a very bumpy ride. I think you just answered my next question, which was, (laughs) if you were giving a lecture to medical students, knowing that some of them will inevitably face a substance use disorder, some of them will, will face addiction, and they'll know people as well. You know, some of them will be that person. Some of them will be colleagues and friends with that person. What would you... What would be some of the highlights of that lecture? And and I, I think you just answered that, right? Well, I answered a little bit. And- I yeah, I answered a little bit of it. I I think and it's interesting. I was just at Jefferson Medical College giving a talk to some medical students. So I'll kind of give you an outline. You're lined of, up, perfect. Well, well, yeah, and this was just a few weeks ago. But I, you know, I really I started out with, you know, we need to have honest conversations, which I said before. Because, because we don't. We have whitewashed, glossed over conversations about these issues. We need to, you know, we need to hear the truth. You know, the, when I started speaking to the students, I talked about the nature of our current crisis, you know, of substance use disorders in this country, a little bit about the history, the data, which is very, you know, enlightening. And also that, you know, the the current crisis we have isn't just, you know, we call it an overdose crisis and, you know, a crisis of addiction, but, you know, we also have a crisis of communicable diseases, right? HIV and hepatitis C and, you know, how all this stuff is wired in and connected and connected to social determinants of health because really all this stuff touches on, you know, racist drug policies, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's everywhere. And this, and the, and I always say policy is worse than the disease and the stigma and the attitudes are worse than the disease. 
because it's just, uh, you know, people with substance use disorders are some of the most marginalized people in our society and they suffer. And, and I think when students like understand that they, they can become a little more compassionate. And I think, you know, as students, eventually they're going to engage with people with substance use disorders and that have these struggles and challenges. And so, you know, there's so much stigma, you know, that's just built into our culture um, and our attitudes. And I think, you know, giving them some insight into that and how to speak to people, right? Even using the word addiction versus a substance use disorder, there's a big difference there, right? Or relapse versus recurrence of use. There's a whole thing about language and I always say language is a reflection of what we think and believe, right? And a lot of times how we engage with people, how we talk to people puts up a huge wall and we don't even know we put up the wall. And then we wonder, well, why isn't this person being honest with me, right? Well, why would they? They don't trust you, right? You... My first question in this interview was how common is addiction? So you're saying what I should have said was how common is a substance use Our disorder? substance use disorders, right. And that's a whole other talk, you know, and I'm, I, you know, I'm not the language police, but I, um, Robert Ashford, who is a friend of mine, and he's an addiction scientist here in Philadelphia, he's done all sorts of research on this. And there's like pretty dramatic, like the bias between saying somebody has like an addiction, you know, versus substance use disorder. Like it's dramatic, you know, he, and he's looking at all this stuff and it's, it's pretty amazing. Like we dehumanize people with our language, right? We marginalize them. We keep them at a distance and we don't even know we're doing it because I even catch myself nowadays. Even things like, oh, the urine was, you know, in terms of urine drug screens, the urine was clean versus dirty, right? Well, you know, if, if you're, if you're, if your urine's clean, you know, people with dirty urines are bad people, right? And it should be positive and negative. And these are like small little subtle things, but they make a big difference. Oh, a, a while ago, I did an interview with Stephanie Sog, who's a psychologist at the Harvard Weight Center about the use of language in in patients with weight issues and that's what the entire conversation was about it was right it was just about how your words the language shapes your thoughts and mm-hmm. the language that you use influences the thoughts of those around you so just by doing something as simple as changing the language you use can Is influence massive. the way people think about things yeah and that leads to you know we talk about stigma, 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 you know, discrimination. And I mean, it's, it's just, it touches everything. So I think teaching students about language, stigma, you know, oppression, um, you know, all the, all these things is really important. I think, I think one of the important things for students to understand is that the, the mindset of prohibition and the drug policy we have in this country has caused our drug supply to be poisoned, right? And make it more dangerous. And that's just something that's happening. And changing policy needs to be done, but that's, you know, that's a monumental feat and it's going to take time. But until then, 
I think they need to understand harm reduction, the philosophy of harm reduction, right? Why it's important to supply people with naloxone, you know, when you're prescribing opioids or if they have an opioid use disorder and they're using these drugs. I think, you know, we need to supply people with, you know, teach students about drug testing equipment and how people can test their supply, you know, because it's been shown, you know, they've done research at Brown and at Johns Hopkins and shown that people who use drugs want this, want to be able to test their drugs and will actually change their behavior depending on what those tests show. Um, I think they need to understand Good Samaritan laws, um, you know, and then I would, you know, tell them a bit about me and my story and how I got there, you know, got to where I'm at today. Um, I think that's a great segue. I think this is, uh, right, because our intention was for you to tell your story towards the beginning, but uh, I think think this would be a great time for it. Sure. So, so yeah, yeah please, so, please tell us your story. So, I, you know, I, I came to the United States. I'm actually originally from Canada in the mid-90s. And I came here for medical training. And ultimately, um, you know, my journey ultimately took me to medical school Um, which is something I always wanted to do. And I actually started out surprisingly in podiatry school. And I actually did two years of podiatry before I went to medical school, which um, I don't usually talk about, but um, I was, yeah, I didn't really like feet. And so I ended up in medical school. I know. um, I've had kind of a a long winding road. but Yeah, you ended up as an anesthesiologist. And if people had trouble finding, you know, a vein, you were there at the feet. Right. You were able to get access there because you knew the anatomy a bit better than everybody. Exactly. And so when I finished medical school, one of the, you know, my whole, my, actually my entire, most of my family is, is in finance, works in finance. And I thought that I could meld, you know, my scientific knowledge with, um, you know, with the finance industry. And I wanted to actually research pharmaceutical companies, um, and provide that that information in the in the finance world, and um, and so I went and actually worked for a couple different firms in New York, um, and this was around the year two thousand two thousand and one, um, which for me put me next to the World Trade Center during the nine eleven attacks, and I had you know as a kid I had used substances, but, you know, I smoked a little marijuana. I I drank a bit, but I never, um, I I mean, substances weren't a thing for me really ever. Um, and I was pretty athletic through high school and early in college and, and played sports and ran track. And it just wasn't something I thought about, but after the 9-11 attacks, and, and I was there, I worked about three blocks away, I developed PTSD. And it's really interesting because I was so, I guess, traumatized and disconnected that I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really have any insight into the extent of, of the trauma and how it affected me. Um, and when I look back on it, like I... You know, I remember that day very vividly. I remember moments during that day when I thought that I was going to die. Um, and, I, and I also remember a specific moment where every, something changed in my head. 
you know, the, there was, there was, it's almost like a switch went off and everything was different from that point on. And it's just, it's, it's really interesting. And, you know, I, I mean, tr- I always say like, like trauma is at the root of, I think the majority of, of people with substance use disorder and, and that trauma doesn't necessarily have to be something catastrophic or massive, you know, like, like I went through, I think it can be subtle things and it depends on the individual and something that, you know, you and I wouldn't have an issue with somebody would. And so, you know, trauma was at the, it was at the root of my substance use disorder. And, and initially, you know, I, I went back to work. I knew I wanted to get out of New York. And eventually I applied for residency to go back to residency because I had initially matched after medical school. And then I reapplied two years later and I came to Philadelphia for a residency in anesthesia. And I really was just floating through life and going through the motions. And amazingly, I, I think part of the way, well, I know part of the way I cope was just working really hard. Um, and I threw myself into work and I was, uh, you know, I was a really good resident. In fact, I was nominated for, for a teaching award during my internship. And I did, I did well, you know, I, I, I moved into my anesthesia training. And, you know, early on, I knew things weren't right. And I definitely had some depression and I went, I went to a couple physicians and I was prescribed some antidepressants and I tried a couple different ones and I didn't like it. And probably like a year into training, I was introduced to cocaine and cocaine made everything better. I mean, it really, it, it just changed everything. I felt great. I felt energized. I wasn't down. And really the first, you know, probably few years that I was using it, it was pretty intermittent and casual, but, but it helped a lot, it helped a lot. And so between work and a little bit of drug use, you know, I moved through residency and I finished residency um, and I was successful. And I actually, when I finished residency, I got a spot as a fellow in critical care medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, which I didn't actually do. I got the spot and I decided like last minute, you know what, I'm going to go into private practice. But I think looking back on it, I, I kind of regret that I didn't do it. I think... I think part of the reason why I didn't do it is I didn't think that I would be able to act the way I was acting, use drugs the way I had started to use drugs um, and get away with it there. And so, you know, I, I just, you know, looking back now, I can see that at the time I didn't, I just was like, oh, that's not for me. I think I'm going to go, you know, I just want to make money and go into private practice. And so, so I did, and I, I was doing well in private practice, and I, and I practiced for about 10 years. And, you know, bit by bit, sometimes I wish something catastrophic happened earlier, but, but it really didn't. Like, this was a very slow, progressive kind of dive into the abyss. <laughs> like, it wasn't like, you know, I got PTSD and everything fell apart. My life fell apart. I was able to hold it together. And I think because I was successful and I was making money and I had good jobs and I did really well at work, um, everybody thought everything was fine. You know, and I think like that, I think that's one of the huge risks 
for us, like as, as medical professionals, as healthcare professionals, when you're doing well and you can dress it up and kind of wear the mask, um, everybody thinks things are great. You know, in fact, you know, many people look at you and are like, oh, that guy's got it all or that girl's got it all. You know, they're doing all the right things, they're doing great at work, look at the car they're driving, look at their house they live in, you know, the kids are at great schools, but that doesn't mean everything's fine. And for me, it definitely, you know, I was not fine. And really around... When did you realize that you weren't... So... Because you mentioned like the slow descent and it seems like it's so gradual that you can kind of rationalize everything. Right. Right. Exactly, which is what, which is exactly what happened. And, you know, even like, even like my, my wife, I think she tolerated a lot of my behavior, which, you know, years later from talking to her, like she knew stuff was, something was wrong, but she tolerated it because I was going to work every day. I was making a lot of money. It, it, it just, it seemed like everything was fine. You know, on the surface, she knew something was wrong, but clearly it wasn't bad enough that that real bad things had, you know, hadn't started to happen yet. So she, in some ways, not intentionally, just allowed it to progress and didn't really call me out and just was like, well, okay, this is how it is. And when a lot, and that's no fault of hers, right? And also, you know, she, she, you know, the people around us who love us don't want to believe that you're sick, that, that something is, is all, you know, something really wrong is going on, which she knew, right? Her instinct was telling her. And it wasn't until, I would probably say like, so I went to rehab in the, in the spring of 2015. And I would say the year before is when things really got bad. I had, I had started a practice with another colleague of mine. So I was making my own schedule, but I was like not working as much. Um, you know, and some of my bad behavior started to come out. Um, and I just, and the drug use was just escalating. And um, I eventually met this woman who had a substance use disorder far worse than me. And that was like the person I hung out with to do drugs, you know, and, and she wasn't in my circle and I figured it was safe. Of course, you know, that, that logic didn't make any sense whatsoever. And I remember standing in my kitchen this was like, I don't know, maybe March or April of 2015. And my wife holding my son, who was very young at the time, like less than a year old probably, and saying to me, I don't even recognize you anymore. And me replying, what do you mean? <laughs> like, it's me. And, I, and that's the first time I realized, wow, something's wrong. Like, I don't even realize that I'm a different person. And... um and and that was it. Like that's what it, I was like. Okay, I'm I'm ready to go away. I, I need to get help. And that changed everything for me. So I voluntarily went away, and I spent four months down in rehab. I went to a place in Florida, and then I went to a place in Kentucky for a couple of weeks that specialized in PTSD. And it was amazing. I mean, it was incredible. And I uh, everything changed for me. You know, every, everything changed, uh, the way I looked at the world, the way I interacted with the world. I mean, it wasn't a straight line. You know, at that point, my wife was ready to leave me. 
pick up the kids and go. But when I got back, you know, and she saw the change, she she hung around, you know, and and having that support was really crucial early on. I mean, it was so important. Um, I always say I don't understand how other people that don't have the love, support, the resources around them are able to recover. Because recovery itself is, it's like climbing Mount Everest. I mean, it is, it is, uh, it's definitely the toughest thing I've ever done, hands down, you know, but the most rewarding. And so I got home and I didn't work for probably another four or five months. I was going to meetings constantly. I was, I dove into recovery, you know, I was exercising, I was spending time with my kids. I mean, things were good. And then I, I got a job um, practicing anesthesia again and I started to work again and, uh, you know, work was great. And yeah, I mean, you know, I had that purpose back and because of my entire experience, I decided that I wanted to, I didn't know if I was going to switch specialties entirely, but I figured, you know, I could do a little anesthesia and also practice addiction medicine. So I applied for a fellowship at Karen Treatment Centers um, with Reading Hospital here in Pennsylvania, which is like, they're like the Hazleton, Betty Ford, you know, kind of over on the East Coast here. And I, uh, and I secured the fellowship. I got, they had one spot and unbelievably I got it. And I was super excited. And there were so many great people there. And, uh, and in July of 2016, I started the fellowship. And three weeks into the fellowship, I was arrested for, uh, for writing some prescriptions to the individual that I was hanging out with in like 2014. So about two years before I had written about seven prescriptions to this girl. And, um, and that was awful. I mean, that was, <laughs> that was like, I was like, how can this even be happening? I mean, this is just, and, you know, it was very shameful. Um, you know, yeah, they, you had, you had you know, made it to the top of Everest. I had made it to the there. top. Right. I had made it to the top and then, you know, <laughs> I got whacked, you know, I got knocked down, you know, lower than where I started before. And, you know, as a, like, we don't talk about this, but as physicians, you know, and, and like, we are high profile, like, and we are in the line of, especially with the current overdose crisis and with what's going on with opioids. I mean, we are in the crosshairs and we don't even realize it. And so I, you know, I was considered high profile, which is ridiculous because, you know, to me, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't running a pill mill and all this, you know, I was like, okay, I I definitely did some stuff that was wrong. I accept responsibility, but the prosecutor in the county, and this isn't, you know, Philadelphia, if, you know, Philadelphia is a very different place than the rest of Pennsylvania. And, you know, our district attorney here is Larry Krasner. He's extremely progressive. I mean, this city's doing some amazing things in terms of criminal justice reform, in terms of the opioid crisis, which we have a massive problem here. But if you step outside this county, which is where I was prosecuted, the mindsets are extremely narrow, you know, and very fixed. They still, many of these counties view substance use disorders as a, you know, moral failing. If you are a doctor, right, it's they want you because they want to show they're doing something. And this prosecutor, you know, the, the line that I kept hearing, because and, and my prosecution went on for two years, 
so from 2060, so my license was suspended, you know, immediately. And for two years, I basically was waiting around. And the pro- and what I kept hearing was the prosecutor was like, you're a doctor, you should have known better, right? Over and over. And I was like, man, I wish it was that easy. Like if that was the case, you know, doctors wouldn't have substance use disorders, you know, lawyers wouldn't, any professional, anybody with half a brain wouldn't. It just doesn't work that way. It was really all about politics. And as soon as your face hits the paper, they can't back down, right? It's all about winning. It's not necessarily about justice. And so, you know, ultimately that wrapped up at the end of 2018. Um, Luckily, I didn't go to jail. So (laughs) that was great. But in Pennsylvania, a violation of the Controlled Substance Act is an automatic 10-year suspension of your license, which is outlandish as well. You know, that's a whole other conversation. I'm also licensed in New Jersey, which is usually three years. You know, theoretically, I could have had my license back in Jersey. But when you have multiple licenses in multiple states, you know, they, they always go with the more stringent one. You know, and I also have a Florida license, which is really interesting. That's a whole other story. But I was recently down in Florida going in front of the board and I told them my story and they, they were considering giving me my license back right away. But, you know, there was a whole political thing. Well, you know, his license is still suspended in Pennsylvania. And so, you know, that's the short of it. And, you know, it was, it was so, you know, the legal thing was so challenging. There's so much shame, so much professional stigma and isolation. And, you know, in recovery, it's all about like connection and getting that support. And the legal thing, you know, that created even more like, you know, isolation. And thankfully... I had some good people around me, you know, the recovery community, the physician recovery community, and I got a lot of support and it just made my recovery stronger, you know, and then I got connected to the organization I work with now, the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition, and I'm doing all this drug policy work and I'm training law enforcement across the state and which was really scary at first, (laughs) understandably and intimidating, but, you know, it's been really good and you know, they appreciate my story and the honesty. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the benefits is that my story is helping them see this in a different light, you know, which is, which is pretty powerful, you know, and I'm hoping I can, you know, use my story and my experience to, to change some of this, this policy and educate people and do different things. And I think, you know, at some point I will try and get my license back. I don't know if I'll ever practice again, but I do want it back. And, uh, and that's kind of how I got to where I'm at today. <laughs> I, I think it would be incredible if you did, if you did that fellowship in addiction medicine, right? All of the people that you get it more than those who haven't been through the struggle. Yeah. Right. Well, that's the lived experience part. That's, that's so valuable. It's, it's, it's a valuable piece. And, uh, and I think Victor Frankel would be, would be proud, right? You found your, <laughs> your, your meaning, right? In, in, in your struggle, you found now you're making all of these connections and helping all these other people because of what you went through. Right. I think right. And that, and that was the most, that was the most painful thing. Like when my license was, well, you know, the face in the paper and then my license getting suspended, I was like, what am I going to do? Like more than anything else, you know, more than the shame and the, you know, my colleagues, some of my colleagues turning their backs on me. It was like, 
what am I going to do? Like, I want to do something, you know, I, I mean, all of us were like, we're high achievers. We like to work we're smart. We're creative. I was like, what am I going to do? I can't do anything. Nobody's going to hire me. I'm like, I, I'm done. And it was like searching for a purpose, searching for a meaning. And I was like, how do I turn this into something that is going to mean a lot to me and mean a lot to other people? And it's, you know, and it wasn't like, oh, this is it. Like, it's just, this has been a slow process, you know, and something that has just, um, you know, something that's just kind of been born, like just emerged, you know, and it's, and it's still, and it's still changing, right? It's still happening. And I have no idea where it's going to lead. And that's like really scary, but it's, but I'm starting to enjoy that because like when we practice medicine, like we're just certain, right? Like you do pre-med, you go to medical school, you do your residency, you're out practicing. Yeah, we have a path. Um, we have it's, a path. You follow yeah, the it's, path it's, and if you follow the rules and if you, you do you do well in your tests, right. then everything will be okay. You're safe. Yeah. And it's comfortable having a path, right? Yeah. And and you get far enough along the path, like, you know, the financial rewards are great and the respect for the most part in the community is great. And, you know, you're looked at a certain way and treated a certain way and then you lose it all. <laughs> and it's like, what, what am I going to do? You know? And, and I think and that's a testament to the strength of your recovery. Yes. And, 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 and more so to the people around me because I like... I, you know, it's not like people are like, oh, you know, you've done so much and you're, you're doing so great. And I'm like, but it's, it's because of everyone around me, you know, my family, my friends, the, the physician recovery community, the recovery community, you know, guys like you, like have me on, you know, I'm honored and humbled to, that you and would even invite me to speak on your podcast, you know, everything I do. You know, I'm just eternally grateful for. And that, like, that's been a massive gift for me because before I just expected it. <laughs> like, I just, and even though, you know, I, I think my, you know, the core of my character is the same, I've changed, like, the way I view the world, the way I look at people and things. I just have a whole other appreciation for life and the people around me. And, and that's a massive gift because I didn't see it before. Well, I think I think the the work that you're doing is is incredible. I mean, I appreciate that you appreciate me having you on the podcast. Um, <laughs> that that really means a lot to me because uh, you know I never know who's listening out there. But uh, but the, all the work that you're doing is it's it's incredible. So so tell the listeners where we can find you and and follow all the great things you're doing. Tell us about your podcast and and any online uh, presence that you've got. Sure. So myself and another nurse in recovery, uh, Bill Kinkle, have a podcast called Health Professionals in Recovery. Um, I think we have six or seven episodes now. And it's, I mean, it's for everybody, but it's focused on healthcare professionals. Um, and we're trying to speak openly and honestly about, you know, substance use disorders and the challenges as practicing healthcare professionals. Um, something that, that most health professionals that are in recovery are not out there speaking. And so we're trying to open that up. I work for the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition. So uh, paharmreductioncoalition.org. We do a lot of drug policy work, advocacy work, harm reduction training, public health. 
Um, we work with law enforcement, uh, the medical community, you know, tons of loads of community organizations doing all sorts of work from treatment industry providers to, um, to organizations that, you know, are involved in policy. We do a lot of government work. Um, we're kind of everywhere. You could check us out also on Twitter and Instagram. And if you look, you can find me on Facebook at, uh, under my name, Sean Fogler. And uh, Sean underscore Fogler is my Twitter and Instagram as well. We'll be linking all that up in, in the show notes. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and and sharing your story with us. I think a, a lot of times physicians, the, I forgot what it's called, but we're like ducks, right? Seems <laughs> seems like we're all calm on the surface, but then you look beneath the surface and we're just kicking and kicking and kicking and kicking. And I think yeah. it'll help a lot of people that you were vulnerable enough to share your story and your struggle with us so that they can they can relate and realize that what they're going through is what other people have gone through and are going through. And I think that's, that's a tremendous help to know that you're not, you're not the only person going through this. You're not alone. And there are people out there that, that can help. And, and all the advice that you gave for, for who, to, who to go to and who's been the most helpful in your, in your struggle. So I really appreciate all of that. Thanks so much. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.